The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would open your New Testaments to the book of Acts, and chapter 4, we want to find our lesson there in Acts chapter 4 this evening. While you're turning there, we know that the book of Acts is the the link between the Gospels, the life of Christ and His ministry, and and then after that, His ascension, and the epistles that were written. It gives us the information that we wouldn't have otherwise if we simply had the Gospels and the epistles to the various churches. It is the historical and inspired account of the establishment of the church and the growth of Christianity and the gospel throughout the world by God's will, the preaching of Jesus being accomplished. That begins in Acts chapter 2, where as is prophesied in various places of the Old Testament, notably Isaiah 2, Daniel 2, and Joel 2, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel is first preached as per the Lord's marching orders and the Great Commission. And accompanying the preaching of the gospel was the miraculous manifestation of tongue speaking which verified the word of the Apostle Peter and the other apostles as they also preached on that great day. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It records that about 3,000 souls were added. And that continues through Acts chapter 3, where we see a notable miracle performed by Peter and John as they healed a man who was lame from birth, who had been laid daily at the gate called Beautiful. This man was understood by the people recognized by the people as being one who is lame. In chapter 4 and verse 22, it notes that he was over 40 years old, and therefore it showed the validity and the certainty of the miracle that was performed. In fact, the opposition of the gospel and of Christ and the apostles counted it as a notable miracle in chapter 4 and verse 16. This notable miracle gathered a crowd and attracted people and curiosity, and it was an attraction from the power manifested in the apostles of the Lord for the purpose of the preaching of the gospel again. And that's exactly what Peter and John did. And we see the success of that in chapter 4 and in verse 4, where the number of those who had obeyed the gospel, men, not including women and children, came to be about 5,000. So that's 2,000 plus in addition to the 3,000 that we see on the day of Pentecost. But I would remind you of the words of Jesus in John chapter 15 and verse 18 when he told the disciples, if the world's hate, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will also persecute or persecuted me. They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It seems that the... Gospel being verified by the miracles and the souls who obeyed it might would 
keep the crowds from reacting in a negative manner to its further preaching. But that was not the case, and the disciples knew that wouldn't be the case. Jesus was rejected without a cause, that is, without warrant, without evidence to the contrary of his own claims, and they would be rejected the same. And that's what we see manifested for the first time in the preaching of the gospel after the kingdom was established in Acts chapter 4. Because the healing of this lame man and the further preaching of Jesus disturbed the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, as the resurrection was preached in Jesus. And they arrested Peter and John. And Peter and John appeared before the Sanhedrin and they were questioned concerning the power and the name, that is the authority by which they had performed the miracle and preached these matters. And without hesitation or without timidity, they preached Jesus to the Sanhedrin once again convicting them of the sin of crucifying Jesus. And we know the story that furthermore, they consulted among themselves in the Sanhedrin court about what they would do about these troublers of Israel, if you will. And they decided upon threatening them. They couldn't do them no physical harm at this time because the, the multitudes thought that these men were legitimate as the miracle they had performed was notable. And so in verse 18, after having decided to threaten them, they called the apostles and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John manifested their intent on doing the will of the Lord. They said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And so as they decided, they carried out the threat. But I want to note that this is not some mild or empty threat. In verse 17, it says that they decided to severely threaten them. And that phrase is actually two Greek words, which means threaten in and of themselves, very closely related to each other, just a few letters different. Albert Barnes in his commentary on the text says, the Greek literally says, let us threaten them with a threat. And he notes that it's a Hebrew, Hebraism expressing intensity and certainty. And so these were no empty threats. It's not that they were threatened and the disciples thought nothing about it, but these were severe threats. These were threats that had weight and were truly threatening with the intensity of the power the Sanhedrin court wielded. And we see the manifestation of that in the fifth chapter after they continued to preach in the name of Jesus in spite of those threatenings and the orders not to do so. And push came to shove. In verse 40 of chapter 5, they agreed with him, that is Gamaliel, as they called for the apostles, that is the Sanhedrin, and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. And they continued preaching. They were severely threatened. And that threat manifested in action of being beaten. But I want us to especially be impressed with what occurred after they were threatened. Beginning in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, it says, Being let go, they went to their own companions, that is likely the other apostles, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them, and notice in verse 24, so when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? 
The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I think that we're impressed by the fact that after being threatened so severely as they were, they did not stop preaching the gospel. They didn't lose sleep with worry. They did not shrink from the great task at hand. Things really didn't change for them in regard to their goals and motivation, but their reaction was to pray to the God they served, to pray to the God who had commissioned them to preach the gospel they were preaching in the world. This says a lot about prayer, and it says a lot about how we're to be as disciples and how we're to incorporate prayer in our life, and the content of their prayer is very telling and I think beneficial to us. I want us to consider firstly the place for prayer in the life of a disciple. We see that in Acts, the early disciples prayed all of the time. Before the establishment of the church, when they returned to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, awaiting the promise of the Holy Spirit Jesus had given them that they would receive in Jerusalem, it says in verse 14 concerning the apostles and those with them, that they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. In the 24th verse, when they were to choose the replacement of Judas Iscariot, it said that they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And we note in chapter 2 and verse 42, after the church was established, that the church was continuing in various practices that were commanded and pertinent to their faith in Christ that was new. And it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread. And they also continued steadfastly in prayer. The New American Standard Bible renders that they continually were devoting themselves, and they devoted themselves, the English Standard Version says, And so they gave their all to prayer. They were doing this daily. They were doing this ceaselessly. They had a priority of prayer. And we even noted in the 12th chapter in the 5th verse when James and Peter were put into prison and James, the brother of John and son of Zebedee, was actually killed by Herod. And Peter was remaining in prison. And therefore, as he was kept in prison, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And we note that Peter was freed by an act of God. And so they continued in prayer. It was, if you will, a staple of the Christian faith. It was vitally important. And First Thessalonians, the fifth chapter in verse 17, we're commanded by the Holy Spirit to pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that we are in a constant prayer throughout the entire day. It doesn't even mean that we have a prayerful attitude. Some would say that, but I don't really know what that means. It means that we are constant in prayer, that every opportunity we find during the day, we pray to God and we make those opportunities to pray to God. Every prayer does not have to be as long as an entire book, but prayers can be very short and to the point. 
God wants us to be in communication to Him. He communicates to us through His Word. And really our main line of communication to Him in addition to worship and, and singing to Him is prayer. We can give our most intimate concerns and thoughts to God in prayer and no relationship thrives without communication. And so we're to pray without ceasing. And we have faith in the efficacy of prayer as James chapter 5 and verse 16 tells us to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he gives an example of Elijah who prayed that it would stop raining and it stopped raining and prayed that it would rain and it did rain. And it notes that he was a man with a nature like ours. Prayer is essential if we are to fight the good fight of faith and be successful in doing so. We note the panoply of God in Ephesians the sixth chapter, all of those pieces of the armor of God having to do with the Word of God in one way or another and how important the Word of God is in our life where we can't stand against the wiles of the devil without putting on this spiritual armor. But if we put on all that spiritual armor and we're not communicating with God about our everyday life and the events which befall us and the trials and tribulations and temptations we have to deal with, we will fail miserably. And this is why I think Paul, by inspiration of the Spirit, caps that off with this, praying always, always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Prayer, among other things, is a part of the glue which holds that panoply of God together. It is vital to our existence as soldiers of Christ. And so when the apostles were threatened after preaching the gospel of Christ for some time and doing the work of the Lord, they prayed. And the content of their prayer is beneficial to consider. We may never encounter the opposition that they encountered but we will encounter opposition. We're told that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So the content of their prayer is going to be efficacious for us to consider. But also this everyday threat from our adversary as we seek to um, overcome the temptations and the trials and tribulations of life as we seek to get to heaven. We need to face those threats with prayer to God and realize the things that the disciples realized in this prayer and realize and acknowledge and request the kind of things they requested. So consider the prayer offered by the apostles after being threatened in Acts the fourth chapter in verses 24 through 31. I want us to note first in verse 24 that they had heard this news. So they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is not some empty phrase that has no meaning to it. We all know that the Lord is creator. They knew the Lord was creator and they were not informing the Lord that he had created the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. But it is of utmost importance that we realize the power that God wields and his position as creator and therefore the one with supreme authority within this life. And so they alluded to Perhaps Psalm 146 and verse 6, as they recognize God in their prayer as the creator of the universe. It's almost a direct quotation from Psalm 146 and verse 6 when it says, 
that he or who, that is Jehovah, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, is added there in that verse. I want us to notice the context of that verse in that very psalm. It's a psalm concerning the blessedness of the one who has put his trust in the Creator, in Jehovah, in God. And it's especially something that was important with the disciples who were threatened at this time. In verses 1 and 2, praise is offered to God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Verses 3 and 4 warn against putting our trust into finite man. It says in verse 3, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. And that very day, his plans perish. I want us to contrast that with really the content of the prayer as a whole in Acts the fourth chapter. They realized, as we'll note, the plans of God and the death of Christ and then the plans of God and the further preaching of the gospel. And they appealed to God for help and that that will would continue and be successful. But men have other plans. And here we have the warning not to put our trust even in those with pomp and power, princes, because they're just going to return to the earth. From dust they came and to dust they will return. And their plans are foiled with their life's end. His plans perish. But notice verse 5. In contrast to that stark contrast, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. And so he is the God who is eternal, who created and therefore has access and control over all the resources. He is not going to to wane in his existence. He's not going to cease to be. And so he is one we should put our trust in. He is the one who keeps truth forever. Notice what is said in verses 8 and 9. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. And so as he keeps truth forever, he's going to take care of those who care about his truth and are righteous according to his standard. He watches over the strangers. He relieves the father Willis and widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. When they appealed to the creative power and history of creation, God created the heavens and the earth to see and all that is in them. It was not just some mindless utterance, but an appeal to the power of God in His position, not just in His ability to alter nature as He created it, but His love for truth and those who are righteous and His care and provision for them. You might remember in Psalm 11, a Psalm of David, where he found himself in dire straits, perhaps in a time of Absalom usurping the throne, or in a time of Saul that was seeking David's life in the wilderness. There was an individual there and warned David about those who were his enemies and said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David notes the Creator, the God who is above all of this in His holy temple, who sees all that is happening and is going to stand for righteousness and therefore has His eyes on the righteous and will uphold them in the end. And so they first acknowledge the power and position of God who is the Creator of the universe and is in control and is especially mindful of His servants. I want us to notice 
Secondly, though, in verse 25, beginning what they progress to in their prayer, in Acts 4 and verse 25, it says, "...who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His Christ." We'll pause there. And I want us to understand that they're quoting from Psalm 2, and they're remembering and acknowledging and even bringing to God's attention and appealing to His, his history and His past of the power of His will and His word, the fact that when it's sent forth, that it will be successful. You see, after they were threatened, it wasn't that they were starting to turn away from their call to preach the gospel. They were dead set on preaching the gospel. We noted in verses 19 and 20 that they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. In chapter 5 and verse 29, after being further threatened, they said we ought to obey God rather than men. This is their focus. We want the Lord's will to be done. We are concerned not about simply our own lives, but we're concerned about the continuation of God's will and His Word being proclaimed. And so they quoted from God's will. They quoted from Psalm 2 and verses 1 and 2. And the content of that psalm is very telling as it pertains to the power of God's will and word. In verse 1 of Psalm 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain, a vain thing? Vain meaning empty, and their plans are empty. That's not going to amount to anything. They plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Notice the reaction of God in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. In other words, God's laughing at them and showing them by declaring the Lord's place on the throne. The Messiah's uh, anointment and placing and power that you can't do anything about my will. You can't thwart my plans. You are powerless before me. If, if it's my will that this happens, then it's going to happen. And this is a messianic psalm of prophecy. And so the decree stands. Verse 7, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. That is begotten to the throne as king. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So the very thing that they sought to do, verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That is, let us overthrow their authority. Let us get out from under their command was itself thwarted. Christ is an authority. And there's a warning given in verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And notice the last phrase. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Why? Because the word of the Lord will be performed. The word of the Lord will be successful No one can thwart the word of the Lord. And so if we put our trust in him by following the word of the Lord and by contributing to the success of God's word, we'll not be ashamed. And we noted as they appealed to Psalm chapter or Psalm two and the prophecy 
of the setting up of the anointed one, they then look to the historical record of the fulfillment of that psalm. In verse 27 of Acts 4, they continued for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, notice, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You already decided this. And they thought they were overthrowing your plan. We remember the time with Herod where he wanted Jesus to perform a miracle. And when Jesus didn't, he mocked him and he treated him in a severe and negative manner and sent him back to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate played the political game and let Jesus go into the hands of the Jews and the Romans who crucified him. They sought to darken that day and to prevent God's will from coming into fruition. And in that same manner of of defying God's will and rebelling against Him, they actually performed what was God's plan all along. That's the power of God's Word. That's the power of God's will. In Isaiah, the 55th chapter in verse 8, the Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And while this certainly indicates that his wisdom and his plans are much more worthy of trust and adherence to than any others, that we may devise plans, but really we should trust in God's plans. I want us to notice that this is an emphasis on the power of God's words, where we may have thoughts and we may have ways and we may have plans that never come to fruition and fail miserably. It's not so with God's. Verse 10 continues, For as the rain comes down, Isaiah 55, 10, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. It has been said that God performs his word. And that is not a Calvinistic principle, although some Calvinists may suggest that phrase with the Calvinistic principle in mind, but it suggests the sovereignty of God in his will, that even when men have free will rebel against him, he is able to use their choices to fulfill his plans. And so it happened with the crucifixion of Christ. And this is what they're appealing to as they were threatened and the Sanhedrin council and the Jews who had crucified Christ were trying to stop their work and their will as it pertained to God's wishes. They knew that God would be in control and if it was his will, they would not be shut up. Even some of the Jews understood this very principle at least, even though they wouldn't have applied it to the apostles and the disciples of the Lord. Consider in Acts the fifth chapter in the same context of the threat not to preach in the name of Jesus, a teacher held in high respect by the people of the Jews, Gamaliel, gave some advice to the Sanhedrin. In verse 35 of Acts 5, he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theotis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now he makes application. 
And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest even you be found to fight against God. And this is something that the disciples understood. And they were convinced that their work was of God as they had seen the resurrected Lord and been commanded by Him to go forth and preach this gospel. And as He was confirming their word and giving them confidence in the miracles being performed through their hands. And they knew God's will would be done. Psalm 33 and verse 10, the psalmist says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord, however, stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Man's plans against God are brought to nothing while the Lord's will stands forever. And they had such an interest, a vested interest in the things of God that they were willing to preach the gospel, yet they prayed that the Lord's will would continue to stand. And notice, thirdly, what they did. After they really just made some acknowledgments and appealed to the power and position of God and appealed to the power of His Word and His will and how He performs it throughout the generations, then they made their request. In verse 29... They continued in their prayer. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want us to notice first that they said, look on their threats. It's not that God was ignorant of what had happened. He wasn't ignorant of the threats. He wasn't ignorant of the situation. Psalm 33 and verse 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him and those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. As we said from Psalm 146 earlier that they quoted, He is the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who made the sea and all that is in them, that God is concerned with truth and He is watching over the righteous. God knew what was going on, yet it's God's will to, in prayer, display our faith before Him and appeal to His power and His care and His provision. Hebrews 4 and verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God sees everything that we're going through, but it's His will that we talk to Him about it, that we call His attention to it, And we call His attention to it so that He can act on our behalf. He can intervene in our life in the way that He sees fit as we appeal to His wisdom and trust in His will. And I want us to understand in Acts the fourth chapter, as we kind of alluded to earlier, that their their prayer and their thought and their concern wasn't really necessarily about their own physical well-being. But their overwhelming concern was for the things of God. They didn't ask for God to take away the threats. They didn't ask for God to take away the danger. They knew they were appointed to this, as Paul said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3. Don't be shaken by these afflictions. You know that we're appointed to this. They knew of what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. They also knew the principles that Paul displayed to Timothy in chapter 1 of his second epistle in verse 6 when he reminded him to stir up the gift of God, which is in him through the laying on of his hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of a sound mind. So don't be afraid of the sufferings of the gospel. God has given you enough to overcome. 
As Jesus tells Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he asked for this thorn in the flesh to depart from him, Christ said, my grace is sufficient for you. They knew that it's God's will they endure these trials. Their concern was that the will of the Lord would go on. But even though we might pray for deliverance from these struggles, we do it in the sense of the Savior in Matthew 26, 39, when he said, not my will, but your will be done. And I want us to understand that their content of the prayer was that God would aid them in enduring through this trial. Not that they would be kept from it, but that God would work in them to gain strength and courage to endure what they were set to endure as disciples of the Lord. They asked the Lord to give them boldness by continuing to work these miracles to to verify and validate their apostleship and their word as being from God and inspired of the Spirit. That would give them what they needed as they knew the Lord's presence to press on. Sometimes we will have to endure trials and we need to pray for God's help and His intervention with the understanding that it may be God's will that we will experience these matters. In James chapter 1 and verse 2, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He mentions that we need to ask God for wisdom, but just doing it in faith with no doubting. We do it trusting in God's ways, that His will is the best way, and that we want His will to be done ultimately through us and in us. We want to grow as God calls us to grow And it may be through the opposition of ungodly men. Consider the prayer of the Apostle Paul while he was in chains. In Colossians chapter 4, rather his request for prayers on his behalf. He tells the brethren in Colossae, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us. And I want us to notice that he doesn't go on to say pray for us that we'd be delivered from these ungodly people, that we'd be delivered from this threat. But pray for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles, especially here in chapter 4 of Acts, were mainly concerned with and focused on the will of God continuing and being successful, and such it should be with us. And our appeals to God should always be prefaced with our vested interest and the things of His. And I want us to notice the efficacy of prayer in verse 31. After they appealed to God, acknowledged His power, acknowledged His Word, and requested His intervention, that the Word would be continued. Verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. God showed them that he heard their prayer and he gave them a positive answer of it. And it's not to say that God will manifest that he heard our prayer in the exact same way. He will cause an earthquake to appear after we have prayed. But these instances and a time where God worked in that way will verify for us that he hears the prayers of his people. He hears the prayers of the righteous. We need to understand that our prayers, if they're offered properly and persistently, are effective. As we mentioned in James 5, 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. But only the prayer that is offered avails much. That may seem to go without saying, but I want us to notice in James 4 and verse 2, 
what James mentioned. He tells the brethren there who were called adulterers and adulteresses, they had their vision split between the things of God and the things of the world. He said, you do not have because you do not ask. And it might make us wonder what he means by that. Why Why would they not ask? What does he mean by that? Sometimes I think that we we plan to pray and we think about praying and we may tell someone we're praying for you or I've been praying about this because it's been something that has uh, uh, been a struggle for me in, in my life. I'm praying. I'm given to prayer. Uh, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So So I'm thinking about the things I need to pray about. But then, although we've thought about those things, and we may have thought very thoroughly through them, we've never actually put them into prayer. We've never formulated them in a prayer before God. And that means a lot. God knows what we're thinking, but prayer is not just thinking. Prayer is conversing with God. Prayer is speaking to God. And we won't have what we do not ask for. But if we ask for it according to God's will, and He deems it, appropriate, he'll give us what we ask for. In Matthew, the seventh chapter in verse seven, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. What man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask Him. God wants us to be successful spiritually. And as we pray for that success to occur through His will and His Word, He will grant us success. It will activate His providence and we'll be given opportunities and we'll be given the necessary uh, matters to get us through this life and get us to heaven. In the sixth chapter, in the model prayer, Jesus mentioned how we should pray, and he mentioned we should pray that his will be done. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We make those prayers, we make those requests to God so that we can be successful spiritually, and he'll carry through with that. This is why Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew 26 and verse 41, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying shortly before his own demise, He told them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When we're tempted, we need to stop and pray. We need to be praying always anyway, but especially when we're tempted, especially when we face trial and tribulation, as the disciples here did, they were threatened in the first thing they did after telling the news to the other apostles is give time to prayer And that granted them the strength and the resources necessary to undergo the trials and tribulations they were faced with and to further the will of God as He desired. Prayer is efficacious. It will result in what we need from God if we're persistent in it and continue in it daily. And so we need to understand in a great time of trial... Just as the disciples did, we need to turn to prayer. We need to be given to prayer throughout our life because if the apostles of all people needed prayer, certainly we need prayer. And we would do well to emulate the way they prayed as they appealed to God, giving praise to Him for His power and ability and position, but also appealing to those things, quoting Scripture, thinking through the history of God with His people 
and appealing to that nature for Him to help us, especially as we carry out His will and live for Him in the flesh. We need to realize how important prayer is and be given to it all the time. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to offer you an invitation. We want you to know, though, that if you are in sin, that the Lord's ear does not hear your prayer. And that's all the more reason to become a part of His family so that you can have access to that throne of grace where you can have mercy and grace to help in time of need. You can do that by being baptized into the family of God this evening. And if you have obeyed the gospel and there's any spiritual need that we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that was selected.